Would you find in your Bibles uh, Acts chapter 17 and verse 16? That's where we're going to put in today. And or if you're using it, um, if you're using a phone, uh, kind of keep that window open, if you will, because uh, we're going to go to it from time to time. And I, I want to um, express our thanks, uh, Nancy and I. Uh, I, th- I think this is our third time down here preaching, and uh, I don't know if you've ever done that kind of thing, but it was a little, you know, intimidating uh, to come down. But you all have made us feel so welcome, and uh, we're thankful for that. It makes it uh, a lot easier, and uh, it's just been—it just seems like it's really been easy to just kind of get in stride. And I thank you for that. So. Um, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I found out much to my horror in the first uh, week or so after I got to school and got registered and stuff that I had to take a class in Shakespeare. And uh, I mean, I didn't go to college to study Shakespeare. I went to college to play football, okay? I mean, that's what I wanted to do. But I found out that it, this was not an elective that you had to had to take a, a class in Shakespeare. So, um, and there was this guy, I don't know how our little cow college in Minnesota got this guy, but anyway, he was a Harvard graduate with a PhD in Shakespearean literature, right? So the first day or two, you know, this guy throws out all these books, um, you know, all of these uh, plays and all of these uh, things that, that Shakespeare wrote, and we have to read like one a week, and I'm going, well, that's not going to happen. Uh, but I also didn't think I could afford to flunk the course, so I made a beeline to the bookstore. And what I was looking for was this thing called Cliff Notes. Does anybody here remember Cliff Notes from school, right? You dive in there, you know, in an emergency. What it is is it's a little teeny book usually, and I love the color on them because they're yellow and black. It's like a construction zone, you know. It's like caution, you know. This is kind of for emergencies only. And... Um, and so I, and the reason I went to uh, Cliff Notes is because you could open up that little book and usually find in there a little, you know, a little summary of each chapter and stuff. This is just for taking tests, right? You know? So, um, and then you could also, and, but I wasn't going to read the whole book, I mean, the whole Cliff Notes. So there's also this little thing in the middle that was just kind of a four or five sentence summary of what the whole thing was about. You know, who the characters were. Uh, what happened, you know, what the tension was, what the conflict was in the story, and then how it resolved. And so um, I took my Cliff's notes and I went back to class, and I think I sailed through that class with a D, maybe a D minus. It was, it was, it was not pretty. But the reason I even bring up Cliff notes this morning is because if there is a summary in the Bible. Of, of, of the gospel, of the things that are essential in evangelism, that's what we're going to get today. It's the story of Paul on, on Mars Hill and his sermon there. In eight verses, eight verses, the whole thing is condensed. All the essentials are condensed to what we need to know, what we need to preach, what a lost world needs to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. People that don't know anything about the Bible, don't know anything about God, don't know anything about the Old Testament, don't speak Christianese, 
like the people out there. And so uh, we'll look into that today. And um, the reason that I really appreciate this is because it just, I guess, kind of like the Cliff Notes, it talks about who the characters are, who God is, who man is, what God has done, what man has done, why there's a conflict between God and man, and what God has done to solve the conflict or to resolve the conflict. So let's uh, look in um, Acts 17, and we'll pick up in the 16th verse. 16 verse, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, if you don't know what that is, that's okay, we'll talk about it a little bit later. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Paul is in Athens. And the way he got there is kind of interesting. Usually the thing that moved Paul along in his missionary journeys was getting drummed out of town by some riot, and this was no different. About 250 miles north of there, of Athens, Greece, He had been chased out of Thessalonica by a rioting mob of Jews who followed him to the city of Berea and drove him out of there. And I think primarily just because of his safety and that this this was getting so violent, his companions in the mission, um, Silas and Timothy, whisked Paul over to the coast and put him on a ship and sent him 250 miles down the coastline where he landed in Athens. Paul, I think, if, if... if you were looking at this from 10,000 feet, you'd say, well, Paul's getting ready to have some downtime. But that's not how it worked out. You know, somebody said, and actually our, our text begins with, now while Paul was waiting. Somebody once said that, you know, life is what happens when you're waiting to do something else. And ministry, I think, is that way too. So Paul was there in Athens and Athens, although it was the the center of intellectual, you know, um, prowess in the first century, and art and architecture, education, science, all of those things. I mean, they found all of their all of those things found their zenith in the place that Paul was. It was an impressive place, but that's not what Paul saw. It says that he saw a city full of idols. One historian has said that at about that time that there was probably 10,000 people in the city of Athens. And that same person has researched and said that there were probably, get this, 10,000 people and there were 30,000 idols. 
Another person commenting about the same thing said that when one went to Athens, it was easier to find an idol of a god than it was another Athenian. And a man by the name of Pausanias who wrote ten books about ancient Greece noted that there were statues of multitudes of gods. And not just statues, but there were altars, little temples, okay, to ideas like like generosity and knowledge. And, and not only were there idols and temples, there were also these little shrines too, right? To emotions like shame and guilt. And he noted that there was even a shrine that was dedicated to rumor. That pretty much covers it all. And it says Paul's spirit was provoked. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but it's hard to overemphasize what that word means. It is the strongest, I think, uh, emotional or word for emotion that's used in all of the New Testament. It is a gut feeling. It's visceral. It comes from inside. This isn't something that Paul worked up. This isn't something that he thought, I should you know, feel like this or I should react this way. This is something that just burst out of him. And in that word, you can find the word provocation. He wasn't just irritated, and he didn't just notice this. There was something that calls an inside-out reaction with the Apostle Paul. And in this word, you can find compassion, passion, anger, frustration. I mean, it was boiling out of him because of what he saw because of the idols. I just want to stop right there and say that this convicts me because here's Paul comes into Athens and and sees not all the grandeur of the city, not all all of the temples, not all of the uh, places of renown, not only things that he's heard about and read about since he was a little kid, but he's taken by the idols and the idolatry that he sees. And I wonder, I wonder if you'll wonder along with me, if we have become so whitewashed by our culture, so numbed by all the stuff, that we don't notice that. And more than, maybe we do notice it, but, but are we, do we have that same kind of visceral gut reaction that Paul did? I'm convicted by that. Well, it says that that Paul's response to that is he went into the synagogue and the marketplace with the gospel. It says that he was preaching Jesus and 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 the resurrection. And while he was doing that, it seems like the philosophers wandered up. And they said, hey, this sounds weird. But we're into weird. So why don't you come up here to the Areopagus? And all that is, is that's just the, that's the hill that overlooked the city where the god Ares, okay, who was the patron god of war in, 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 uh, in Athens, that's his hill. Okay, that's where all they had all the public forums. That's, that's the same place where 400 and some years before uh, Aristotle and his student Plato and his student Socrates had all held forth these giants of philosophy. 
So here Paul is, right? And right across the way, 150 yards away, is this huge one of the ancient wonders of the world, the Parthenon. Almost as big as a football field. 30 foot high, 6 feet diameter, solid marble pillars. as a temple to the goddess Athena. I mean, this was a heavy-duty place. And this was a heavy-duty crowd that Paul came into. But when he came into into Athens, the dazzle of Athens is not what got his attention. He was not wowed because he saw behind that to the idolatry and the need right before him. But as oppressive as Athens was, it was in serious decline from its glory days. Because all of these philosophers... The Aristotles, the Plato's, the Socrates, and a whole bunch of other ones whose names some of them I can pronounce, some of them I can't. All of these together, although they had put their minds to, uh, to, to inquiry, philosophical inquiry as to the meaning of life, as to the meaning of existence, and all of these things, all of these guys had kind of, kind of run crossways to each other. And so philosophically, the country just kind of given up. And, and lapsed into a, a skepticism because these guys, these great minds, couldn't agree what it was all about. So the Athenians just kind of went into a skepticism, kind of like the skepticism that we see today in our own country. What is more skeptical than a than a than a philosophy that 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 is existent in our society that says really a there is no such thing as absolute truth. That's pretty skeptical. Or, if there is such thing as absolute truth, it's unknowable. That's pretty skeptical. Or, truth is whatever I want to make it. That's pretty skeptical too. And so, with the failure of all of these things, the Athenians had just kind of decided to, to, to deal with life as it is and, and do the best you can. The philosophers had failed them. By the way, I read this and I thought it was good. I'll just pass it on to you. That if you could take all the philosophers in the world and lay them head to toe, it'd be good to just leave them like that. But but in this hopelessness, there was two very skeptical philosophies that we read about. They emerged, and, and that was Epicureans and Epicureanism. And they believed in chance. And they pursued pleasure. And the others were the Stoics who were fatalists. And their their thing was enduring pain. So the Stoics were kind of grin and bear it, only don't grin. And the the Epicureans were kind of more the Hakuna Matata type, you know. Just let it go. It's all good, right? And uh, we see that same kind of thing today. And I, I know that's an oversimplification because both of these philosophies were, were really highly intellectual, but they were theologically bankrupt. Theologically bankrupt, and they led nowhere. So here we have Paul at the zenith in Athens of a world science and art and learning and democracy kind of on the hot seat before these elite intellectuals. Let's pick back up in verse 22. This is Paul in front of the philosophers on Mars Hill. So Paul stood in the midst. And by the way, these are the eight eight verses that condense the whole story. 
right here. See if you can see it. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, that I proclaim to you. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you were sitting here right now thinking this. What do thousands of idols and a discourse about an unknown God in Athens 2,000 years ago have to do with me? And to kind of, and that's a good question. I mean, it's a fair question. And to kind of help bridge that gap, I'd like to quote from a, a book by, the guy, by a guy by the name of Daniel Dink, and I love the name of this book. You've got to love this name. It's called Why Good Arguments Often Fail. And what it is, is it's kind of a best guess of what Paul's speech to the Athenians here might sound like at a modern-day university campus. Okay? So this is Paul on a modern university campus, and here's what it sounds like. Men and women of the university... I see that in every way you are very religious. As I walked around the university, I observed carefully your objects of worship. I saw your altar, called Stadium, where many of you worship the sports deity. I saw the science building, where many place their faith for the salvation of mankind. I found an altar to the fine arts, where artistic expression and performance seem to reign supreme without subservience to any greater power. I walked through your residence halls and observed your sex goddess posters and beer can pyramids. Yet as I walked with some of you and saw the emptiness in your eyes and sensed the aching in your hearts, I perceived that in your heart is yet another altar, an altar to the unknown God, who you suspect may be there. You have a sense that there is something more than these humanistic and self-indulgent gods. What you long for is something unknown. I want to declare to you now. So what are idols? Any things, persons, or beliefs that we devote ourselves to, to give ourselves to, in hopes that they will satisfy us and that they will give us security. And it can be anything. I mean, it can, it, can be, uh, it can be self, it can be pursuing pleasure, it can be comfort, it can be self-expression, it can be Confucius, it can be Muhammad, it can be a transcendent Buddhist state of nirvana, it can be a tree stump, it can be tradition or a career or wealth or power, you name it, man can make an idol out of it and will. Someone said that, that man's greatest crime is his religions. Now, anthropologists have been trying to figure out what man is, what makes man man. And you all remember from eighth grade science, maybe, or, or sociology, Homo erectus, man what makes man, man, is that he walks upright, right? Homo erectus. 
Or then they came along later and said, no, 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 that's not right. It's not homo erectus, it's homo sapiens. It's because man is a thinker. But a Romanian guy by the name of Mirce Eliade, back in the early 1900s, after traveling the globe, trying to find out what it is that makes man, man, came up with this term, homo religiosus, that man is innately religious. And he found that, you know, even though the, that the, 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 the objects of worship, whether it's rivers or, rivers or mountains or bees or cows or Confucius or planets, that every culture envisions a main God. I mean, there's one main God, but that God is a God that's just around the river bend or He's just over the mountain or He's just beyond the stars and He's unknowable. But this is the God that somehow ties it all together and makes life make sense. This is the God that Paul is proclaiming, and this is the God that we proclaim. So how did Paul preach in this idle wasteland to Athenians who were devoted to idols, had no knowledge of the Bible whatsoever? And I think it's good for us to pay attention here, close attention to these eight verses, because... That's what we walk into when we walk outside the doors here. There are people that just don't know. They don't know anything about God. They don't know anything about the Bible. So where to start? Verses 24 through 26, it's the revelation of God. He starts with proclaiming the truth about God. It's a God-centered message. It's about God the Creator. You see, Paul didn't start to scratch their philosophical itch. That's what they wanted. Remember, these are the guys that want to just hear something new, but be detached from it and really not care. He didn't start to try to scratch their philosophical itch. He did not start with felt needs. Because you know what? They didn't have any. And a lot of the people that we talk to don't either. But what he started with is starting where God starts with. The creation. In the beginning, God. You see, he started with man's biggest need, his separation from God. He says God is the Creator, Lord, and the Sustainer. God gives life and breath. He's a sovereign determiner of people and nations, like the Greeks. Let's I forgot to read. Let's, let's pick up in verse 24 and go uh, down through 31. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in human, dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. 
Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having looked, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He starts with God's revelation of himself as creator and sustainer and the sovereign, that it's God that is pulling the levers in human's history. You notice he says there that it's God that's, that's appointed the times and the boundaries of nations because the Greeks, I think, thought like many nations that have risen to, have risen to uh, prominence and power, that, that, that this was something that they were doing, that they were riding the crest of the wave that they'd created. But just like every other civilization, Rome and Greece, and yes, even this one, God has appointed the times and the seasons and the boundaries. So God is a creator. He's a sustainer and he's a sovereign. Verse 27 says something very surprising to them that they, that is, that men would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from all of us. God desires relationship with his creation, with men. To seek, men were to seek, were to grope, and to find. Not to be that God that's out over the hill, that's around the bend, that's out just beyond the stars, but a God that is findable, a God where we can have relationship with him. And in verse 28, it says that in him we live and move and have our being. Now, this statement for these philosophers had huge implications, and it has huge implications for us today. R.C. Sproul says that what follows next in this says that this is the most profound statement of truth in Scripture. Get that? What's coming up here is the most profound statement of truth in Scripture. You see, the Greek philosophers, uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and, and even those before him, had tried in vain to understand three great mysteries of life. And they'd failed. And those mysteries were life, Motion and being. Now, I'm not a philosophy expert, and I don't pretend to be, but as I was studying this, I came across some things that I think that would be very helpful uh, in understanding it. So I appreciate if you put on your thinking cap caps for a minute and, and follow closely. Three mysteries of the ancient world. Life, motion, and being. And modern philosophies have probably pretty much given up on answering these three things too. But Paul answers it here in one statement. Now, the Greeks thought about things like this because they didn't have Meghan Markle and social media and things like that to think about. So they thought about some of these other things. Life. Where does it come from? What's its meaning? Well, today, in your schools, life is taught as a cosmic accident. It's meaningless. That it comes from meaningless 
that life arises out of nothingness and goes to nothingness. It's a cosmic accident. It comes from primordial soup and means absolutely nothing. But somehow, we're told, it's supposed to have dignity in between these two things. What does death signify? Does it matter? Kids are told that they come from nothing and they're going to nothing. And yet somehow, when they load automatic weapons and bring them to school and shoot each other, we wonder why. A tsunami kills 3,000 people. So what? But life, Paul says, comes from God, and he's given it dignity by stamping his image on every person. Therefore, human worth and dignity comes from God himself. Number two, motion. I don't want to go too far off track on this, but things are in motion, right? Planets, rivers, clouds. How did it start? The Greeks wondered about that. You know, this infinite regression of motion is not possible. In other words, the, 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 the train of dominoes that we see falling over in one another and this continual motion can't go back forever. How can it be explained? There has to be an unmoved mover. And here is Paul is saying that God himself is the explanation that he initiates motion and change and directs it for his purpose. We're transitory and he is unchanging. The change we observe around us finds its meaning and its origin in God. Being, where does being come from? In him we live and move and have our being. You know, in the Greeks, their, their answer for this was almost as lame as ours. In the Greeks, you know, suddenly... Uh, creation came from light, which somehow just kind of produced itself, and Gaia, the mother earth, and Uranus, the god of the sky, and, and some of the other lesser gods just kind of poofed into being. Well, nobody really believed that, but that was the official line. And schools today teach that all matter at one point was just compressed into uh, a tiny subatomic particle that just for some unexplained reason just blammo and things came into being. But somebody noted that out of nothing comes nothing. It reminds me of a Billy Preston song from back in the 70s who most people don't know, but he actually played keyboard for the Beatles for a little bit. And his song was this. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. How can being proceed from non-being? If anything exists now, something has always existed. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And, and God discloses Himself as the great I Am, from which all other beings. So he moves from revelation of who he is, the self-evidence of God, to, to re rejection and responsibility. And in spite of the fact, in verse 30, that God has clearly revealed himself as a person, man is deliberately turned away from the self-revelation of the person of God to worship idols, lifeless, 
and we're each responsible for that rejection. It's clearer in Romans 1, 19, 20. It says this about men. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So there is an internal witness. God says he made it evident in them and made it evident to them. So I think what this is saying is that there are no real atheists. And so Paul doesn't waste his time arguing about the existence of God that don't know to people that don't know anything about God. In the beginning, God. The Bible doesn't argue for the, for the existence of God. It assumes it. And you know how much proof Paul offers these Athenians? I think we need to think about this. How much proof he offers them for the existence of God? None. Because Paul believes, Romans 1, 19 and 20, that God has made that evident to them. This is not a knowledge problem. This is a heart problem. It's a heart problem that gives way to idolatry. And see, the thing is, and let me get on just a little bit of a soapbox here. I don't know why we keep trying to prove God exist, God's existence to atheists who God says don't, don't exist. Because when we do, we get all wrapped up around the axle in philosophical arguments and, and things like this and so forth. And we don't get to the points that Paul gets to here, which is that God has made himself known. And men have rejected what God has made known about him. And they are responsible before God for that rejection. God's not confused about the issue at all, so he commands, it says. You get that? He's commanding all men to repent of their rejection. But God is gracious. See that here? Paul Paul tells these people, hey, look, God has overlooked this in the past. He's not anxious to judge. He wants to see men delivered from judgment. But in his mercy and in his grace, he is commanding all men to repent. Now, it's not unusual after a sermon, right, to have an invitation where people are are, are called, invited, if you will, to come up front. But God is not inviting. God is issuing a subpoena for men to come. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's kind of, Who does he think he is? God? But think about this. If you as a parent saw a child playing in the street and a bus coming, what do you say to that child? Johnny, I want to invite you to come out of the street. Would we say that that is a loving parent? No. We say it's crazy. God is commanding all men everywhere to repent because of the imminent danger, because there's a time of reckoning coming. And it's all set up. It's a fixed day. 
There's a man who's going to judge the world. Idols will not save. The date, the man, the criteria are all set. Man's urgent problem is that he's under impending judgment. Now, you know, we've backed off almost entirely in communicating God's judgment. And I don't know if it's because we're embarrassed or apologetic about it, but as surely as God judged sin on the cross of Jesus, He will judge unrepentant sin. We can't have the one without the other. And when we when we get to this point and refuse or neglect or, 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 or turn away bringing up judgment, God's judgment on unrepentant sin and idolatry. You know, we're offering Jesus as a bridge with no river. We're offering Him as a, as a Savior with nothing to say from. And a solution for which there's no problem. So what can we learn from this? I, I told, I, I spoke earlier about Paul's gut reaction. The idolatry that Paul saw pushed his hot button. It was a gut reaction. Passion and anger. Now, we all have buttons, right? I do. And it's important for us to understand because this is how the story starts. It starts with Paul's button getting pushed. When Paul's button doesn't get pushed, none of this story happens. No witnessing in the synagogues, in the marketplace, Areopagus, none of that. It was because he saw a city full of idols. Paul's hot button was pushed because of his love for the Lord and his compassion. What's your hot button? What is it that gets your juices flowing? What does it get you fired up? Who gets you ahead of steam or stoked? What is it? I mean, is it politics? Is it what you see on social media? I see Christians all the time really fired up about what they see on social media. Is it sports? Is it passion for your hobbies with me? My hot button's time. Time. When I'm trying to get something fixed on my phone or my computer or I got some issue and you get, you know, you call the 800 number and you get on the phone tree and you press one for this and four for that and five for that and then you get disconnected and you start through the thing again. You don't want to be that poor man or woman that gets on the phone. when Find the, the first human voice that answers because I've already been deprived of my time. And I get, that's my hot button. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how our hot buttons, the things that get our juices flowing, the things that rev us up, that get us stoked, that when there are other things, we don't have any bandwidth left for the Lord Jesus.
There's no space in our spirit like there was in Paul's when we're consumed with our own life and our self-agenda. You know, some have said that what Paul does here is a, is a real basic course in apologetics, you know, giving answers and witnessing with reasons from the Scripture. And I think something that we've overlooked is that apologetics, and you talk to Christians about apologetics, and they'll say, yep, I'm going to take a course, I'm going to study, I'm going to get all the answers, I'm going to get how A connects with B and all these dots and all these things like that, but that's not where it starts. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Then, always being ready to give an answer for anyone who asks you for the hope that lies within you. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's a once for all yielding of the mastery of my thoughts and my feelings, my ambitions and my hot buttons for Him. My objectives for His mission, my self-expression for His glory. Jesus' hot button should be our hot button. Compassion for lost sinners. You know, it says, the Scripture says that when Jesus looked out over the people, that he felt compassion for him because he saw him as like sheep without a shepherd. That's one aspect of his button. The other aspect, I think, is when Jesus, remember when he came up to the temple and saw the money changers doing their thing in there? I think that was another thing that came out of him was zeal for his Father's glory. His hot button should be our hot button because there's no other buttons worth having. There's no other passions are worthy of our juices and our sacrifice. Another thing I think we can glean from this is in the wasteland where Paul was preaching, giving testimony, our message needs to get to Jesus and His resurrection because you look way back in verse 18 at the beginning of this, whether it was in the synagogue or the marketplace, Paul was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And we find out here that at the, you know, when Paul had taken his little eight-verse cliff notes kind of pre- uh, preaching, he comes to Jesus and the resurrection. Our message needs to get to Jesus and his resurrection all the time. His approach, doubtless, was different. And it was determined by his audience. To Jews in the synagogue, it would have been one thing. To the people in the marketplace, maybe another. And the philosophers on the hill, yet a third way. That was the approach. But the destination was always the same. Jesus and the resurrection because. Romans 10.9, folks, we need to remind ourselves of this all the time. That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Paul's route to getting there to Jesus in the resurrection, just like ours was, should be contoured to make sense to our audience. Our terminology needs to connect. You know, it's really interesting. If you look through the story, and I encourage you to do it sometime on your own, it's striking 
how little Christianese Paul uses in this presentation. He doesn't use Christian buzzwords. It's kind of like, whoa, is this Paul? Yeah, he's getting the idea across in terminology that they understand. You have to start where they start. It's just just kind of like the GPS on your phone, right? You put in a destination, say, get me there, and they say, from where? What's your, what's your starting point? Because the route's going to be different depending upon where you're starting from. And the same as it is when we testify of Jesus Christ. Where are we starting from? Where are the people that we're talking to starting from? Paul would have pulled out you know, his King James Bible and started talking to these guys about Old Testament prophets. They would have gone, Next! Our job is to proclaim the truth about God and leave the results to God. You know, oftentimes, um, and you see it here, right? Oftentimes, our evangelism in the wasteland brings underwhelming results. Underwhelming results. It says that Paul delivered the message and went out. He wasn't thrown out. He wasn't driven out. He was free to go, having been faithful to preach the good news, leaving the results to God. And and it says, but some men, in verse 34, some men joined him. And I think it's pretty clear that the vast majority didn't. That if, if you were to talk about all the events, pick up the Athens newspaper and say, oh, what really significant happened this week that, that the, what the Apostle, Apostle Paul did really didn't make much of a dent in Athens, except to Dionysius and Damaris, and it says a few others. A little boy was walking along the beach where the tide had washed in millions of little starfish and washed them up and then receded, leaving these millions of starfish stranded on the beach. And he was walking and he'd stop and pick one up and throw it back in, walk a little further, pick up another one, throw it in. And off in the distance, a man was walking towards him on the beach, watching a little boy stop every now and then and pick up a starfish and throw it back in. And they slowly closed the gap. And the man came up to the little boy and he said, son, he said, don't you see the millions here? You can't make a difference. The little boy picked up a starfish and threw it in and said, made a difference to that one. Picked up another one and said, made a difference to that one. I don't know, maybe you're here today and, and you've been listening to all the, uh, this talk about altars to things that are not God, things that can't satisfy or give life, and, you, and you're thinking, wow, that's, that's me. That you've been worshiping at the shrine of self or pleasure or addictions or even the altar of shame. Maybe you've been bound to the altar of shame or guilt 
Well, there's good news. The living God, the true God, who wants a relationship with you, has overlooked your rejection of Him. And He's offering amnesty. Amnesty. For those who will forsake and come to Him and repent. So I want you to encourage you to forsake your dead idols for glory. The glory of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who satisfies completely and secures us eternally. Father, we are grateful um, that you are a patient God, that you have looked over men who have turned their backs on you, on your plain revelation of yourself, of your personhood, of your goodness, and said no. And Lord, we thank you that through the cross, you've offered amnesty. You've offered a way back. You've offered forgiveness and relationship. And Father, I just pray that today uh, that someone here that has found themselves caught up in altars and things that can't give life, things that can't give satisfaction, and if they're honest today, they're empty would seek satisfaction and security in the person in whom it can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name.